The infinite, like no other problem, has always deeply moved the soul of men. The infinite, like no other idea, has had a stimulating and fertile influence upon the mind. But the infinite is also, more than any other concept, in need of clarification. Those were the words of David Hilbert, one of the greatest mathematicians of the 20th century, but even he seemed to get giddy at the concept of infinity. When it comes to infinity, the mind tends to boggle. Well, don't worry, because I've assembled a crack team of mathematicians who all pitched in to give you a crash course in everything you need to know about the history, the mystery, and the paradox of infinity. And our first explicator of the infinite is Ian Stewart of Warwick University. Infinity is interesting because even among mathematicians, they treat it with a lot more respect than they do most of the other innovations that come into the number system. And you'll find them all say, well, it's not really a number you know. And then they go and do calculations with it as if it is a number. Infinity comes up in mathematics in a whole pile of different ways for different purposes, and in a sense they are different concepts of infinity. But in every case, it really it's the sort of hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy business of the universe is big, really big, absolutely. It's much bigger than you think, even bigger than that. Infinity is the attempt to encapsulate in some nice simple little phrase the idea of something that is absolutely ginormous. And if you put any specific number to it, no, that's wrong because there's things much bigger than that. My first memory of using it, and it's a kind of childish thing that you always have where you're in the playground and someone says, I hate you, I hate you ten times, I hate you a million times, I hate you ten million times, I hate you infinity times, I hate you infinity plus one times. At which point I was the, the smart ass in the playground saying, you can't have that, it's the same thing, you're cheating, infinity plus one is infinity. It's the same. And I'm that really annoying child. But that's because infinity isn't a finite thing. The whole the, the, This concept of going on and on and on and on. If, if you on, could, if you could, on. if you could get there, <laughs> then, then it wouldn't be infinity. That was ex-mathematician and comedian Dave Gorman. He's absolutely right that infinity plus one is still infinity. And if it turns out that the universe is infinite, then there are some other equally weird consequences. You can win loads of arguments with it because if someone says, "Are there aliens on another planet?" Infinity suggests that there probably are. Because if the universe is infinite, it doesn't matter how far you've searched, it doesn't matter how far you've gone, no matter how many planets you've looked on and proved there cannot be, infinity suggests that, as we don't know, the edge of the universe, it sort of... Right, so this is his argument that if, so, if anything is possible, then in an infinite universe, it suddenly becomes inevitable. Yes. The theory behind, behind a lot of my work is, if you say enough words, laughter is inevitable, <laughs> I think. And I've just proved it there with Thank your own you. kind laughter. For me, the classic example of an infinite paradox is encapsulated in a fable invented by David Hilbert. Here's the story of Hilbert's Hotel, recounted by Australian maths enthusiast Adam Spencer. Imagine you rock up to a room run by a guy called Hilbert, the famous German mathematician. He's running a hotel on the side, and it's a big hotel. In fact, it's got an infinite number of rooms. You're thinking, I should be able to get a room here. You front up, knock on the door. How are you going? I'd like to stay in your hotel with an infinite number of rooms. Sorry, sir, we're full. Oh, OK, I'd better go. No, don't worry, I think I can sort it out. I'll ring everyone in the infinite number of rooms and tell them to move to the room next door. So the person in room 1 goes to room 2, room 37 goes to room 38, and so on. These infinite number of people in an infinite number of rooms all move one to the left, and suddenly you can take room 1. So the hotel was already full, but you can go in, and it's still full. So it's a lovely demonstration of the way that, you know, infinity plus 1 equals infinity still. Yep. Later in the night, there's this mad rugby tour going on in town and an infinite number of people show up all wanting to stay in this hotel. 
Suddenly, Hilbert can't ring the first person and say, can you move infinity rooms to the right? Go to infinity plus one, because there is no room to which that person would move. Have we finally shown that, well, infinity plus infinity doesn't work? Uh, Hilbert's a smart guy. He's had this happen before. He rings everyone and says, hey, can you go to the room number that's double the one you're currently in? So if you're in room one, go to room two. If you're in room six, go to room 12. Room 38, go to room 76. Everyone packs their gear, does that. Suddenly, all the even numbers are full. All the odd numbers are empty. There's an infinite number of odd numbers. The guys and girls on the rugby tour just go into the odd rooms. Again, the infinite hotel, which was already full, remains full, even though an infinite number of people have now moved in. So not only does infinity plus one equal infinity, but infinity plus infinity also equals infinity. Double it or halve it, and you still have infinity. John Barrow of Cambridge University told me how there was a certain sense of unease amongst mathematicians when they first realised the peculiar properties of infinity. You can see here why people were very nervous about the idea of infinity, even more so than they were about zero. 2,000 years ago, people were worried about infinity destroying mathematics, even as late as 1900. They felt that if you introduced infinity into mathematics, then it was like a disease that would spread and render the whole thing valueless and illogical. There was a young student from Trinity who solved the square root of infinity. While counting the digits, he was seized by the fidgets, dropped science, and took up divinity. But in the 1870s, there was one man who had the courage to wrestle with infinity. Gail Cantor used ruthless logic to demonstrate why there are as many even numbers as there are all numbers. His argument relied on pairing up every number with an even number, thereby proving that there must be the same number of each. You suppose you have all the numbers, and you then write down all the even numbers. Now, at first you might think, oh, there's only half as many even numbers. But it's not so if the set's infinite. Because you can always set up this one-to-one -one correspondence. One goes to two, two goes to four, three goes to six, four goes to eight, and so on forever. You call these things countably infinite. So even numbers are clearly a subset of all numbers, and yet what you're saying is that there are clearly as many even numbers as there are all numbers, because you can pair them off quite happily, one to two, two to four, three to six, and so on. That's right. This is a feature of infinite sets. If we just had five numbers, three even numbers will be a smaller set than the five ordinary numbers. But when the list is infinite, it's not true. Cantor proved that all whole numbers and all even numbers are both equally infinite. But what about if you compare all whole numbers against all real numbers? Now, real numbers include the whole numbers like 1, 2 and 3, but they also include fractions and irrational numbers and decimals, such as pi and the square root of 2. To assess how many real numbers there are, Cantor tried to write them down in some kind of order because that would allow him to pair them off with the whole numbers and prove that the infinity of real numbers is no bigger than the infinity of whole numbers. But Cantor ran into problems. Ian Stewart again. If you make the next step to the real numbers, which have infinite decimal expansions that go on forever... Right, so these are numbers that you can't yeah, necessarily write down right. as fractions. Furthermore, you cannot arrange all the real numbers in in some order so that you can say this is the first one, this is the second one, this is the third one and if we carry on like that forever we'll, we'll have arranged all of them in that sequence. Cantor had a clever way of proving that 
if you try to do that, you miss nearly all of them out, is the point. So the set of real numbers is an infinite set that cannot be matched one-to-one -one with the set of whole numbers, and therefore it's a bigger infinity. And this is the truly mind-boggling conclusion. Some infinities are bigger than others. The infinity of even numbers is as big as the infinity of all whole numbers. But the infinity of all numbers, including decimals, is infinitely larger. In fact, Cantor demonstrated that there was a hierarchy of infinities, an infinite variety of infinities. This is one of the most complex concepts in mathematics, and struggling with it drove Cantor into severe bouts of depression. It didn't help that some other mathematicians dismissed his work, failing to see its beauty and integrity. Cantor showed that there is no end to this hierarchy of infinities. The arguments that he used to show that the rationals were countable, and more particularly that the irrationals were not, were a completely new type of logical reasoning. Beautifully simple and elegant, and you just wonder how people managed to miss these ideas for so long. My theory stands as firm as a rock. Every arrow directed against it will return quickly to its archer. How do I know this? Because I have studied it from all sides for many years. Because I have examined all objections which have ever been made against the infinite numbers. And above all, because I have followed its roots, so to speak, to the first infallible cause of all created things. So there are an infinite number of numbers and some sorts of numbers are infinitely more infinite than others. Therefore, there must be an infinite number of possible problems to solve, an infinite number of equations to investigate. In the 1930s, mathematicians such as Alan Turing began to wonder how many of these problems could, in theory, be solved. Turing developed the concept of doing a calculation by programming a computer. It was only then that it dawned upon him that some of these programs, or algorithms, might never ever stop. Some of these calculations might never produce a result. The fundamental limitation on, on what can be computed is that there's no general method to decide whether an algorithm will eventually halt or not. It, actually, the difficulty is showing that it will never halt, that you'll never get an answer. And my omega number is a sort of a probabilistic version of this. Instead of looking at individual algorithms or programs and asking, will they ever come to a stop, what you do is you, you take all possible computer programs, you throw them into a bag, close your eyes, and then you reach in and you pick one out. And you ask, what is the probability that that program or that algorithm chosen at random will eventually halt? And that's my omega number. That was Greg Chaitin. The intensity of his voice betrays his genius because he is without doubt one of the world's greatest mathematicians, the mathematical equivalent of David Beckham. His number, omega, tells us what fraction of problems can never be solved, the fraction that is uncomputable. Unfortunately, it's not a number that you can pin down. The number that tells you how many problems are uncomputable is itself uncomputable. This number turns out not only to be uncomputable, uh, Turing already knew in his 1936 paper how to give us uncomputable real numbers, but this real number is sort of maximally uncomputable. It's sort of maximally unknowable. Hang on, th this number omega... The, the halting probability. You're saying you can't actually define it as a number. You can't say it's 0.76543 to 1 or whatever. 
I can define it mathematically in an abstract way, but I can't ever calculate it digit by digit like I can calculate it too. And it's even worse than that. I can't even prove what digits of this number are. It's sort of maximally uncomputable. Uh, it's maximally unknowable. In fact, it turns out it, it's a perfect mathematical imitation of randomness. So in other words, just like physicists in the 1920s discovered randomness uh, in quantum mechanics in the foundations of physics, and this horrified older scientists like Einstein, who believed in a deterministic classical universe, what I found in pure mathematics with my omega number is analogous. It's, it's a kind of randomness in the foundations of pure mathematics. We're still trying to assimilate this and trying to understand the philosophical implications. I think a lot of mathematicians are horrified at this notion the same way that a lot of classical physicists who believe in determinism were horrified by quantum physics of the 1920s. So, by exploring the infinite number of possible calculations, mathematicians now have a new number to play with, omega. And maybe that's a good place to end the series, with the latest, greatest number in mathematics. And perhaps the last word should go to the man who invented the omega number. Or did he discover it? Well, I'll let him decide. Einstein's view is that mathematics is something we invent, uh, we invent it in order to invent science, in order to understand the results of experiments, in order to understand the world around us. But Einstein points out somewhere that 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, they look a priori, they look God-given, they look like necessary tools of thought because we invented them so long ago that it's hard to conceive of thinking about things any different way. But Einstein's view is that these are all inventions. I think at some point he said something like free inventions of the human mind. And the justification is that they work. Wanted the, wanted the, wanted the, wanted the, wanted the.